Hey, it's uh, good to be with you this morning. Glad we get to continue journeying through the wilderness in our sermon series. Um, if you haven't been with us in a while, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the wilderness experiences of life. Those are the experiences where it's really difficult um, and you wonder how on earth am I going to make it through. And so our theme this year is pressing into what matters most, on purpose pressing into what matters most. And we want you to not waste your wilderness experiences. We want you to intentionally navigate them. And so we're giving you tools to not just survive the wilderness, but to actually thrive in the midst of it. So I'm going to read to you Psalm 120 and Psalm 121, and we're going to, we're going to find some gold nuggets here for our wilderness experiences. Let me read them to you. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and He heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp, arrow, sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, there for war. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The, sh the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So... In these two songs, we find two very important keys for navigating the wilderness. And here it is in this statement. We must grieve, but we must grieve with hope. Grief and hope is needed in the wilderness. And in fact, grief and hope is what makes up biblical lament. That's what it means to lament. It is to grieve with hope. Now, this is so, let's just focus on the, the grieving aspect first. Because in my experience, in, in working with Christians and relating to Christians, and even in my, myself as I looked at how I've dealt with wilderness experiences, often Christians are not very good at grieving. Um, we don't want to grieve. We don't want to experience negative emotions. And so what we often do is we deny them, we suppress them, we try to distract ourselves from negative emotions. And so, this creates problems for us. Um, what we, and how we deny these things and suppress our negative emotions is often what we do as Christians is we go very quickly, we short circuit the grieving process and we go really quickly to the silver lining. We do that all the time. And it's, it's, it's really an avoidance mechanism. That's what it is. And so, we need to be careful that we don't run from our negative emotions, but we actually lean into them. Um, I think Christians think that it is complaining to lean into your negative emotions. 
um, and that it is something that a Christian shouldn't do. When we hear the passage, you should be joyful in all circumstances, we, we often take that to mean that we are supposed to walk around with a smile on our face, um, even if it's fake, right? Also, especially as guys, we struggle with negative emotions because I think our culture has pushed to us this stoic, macho man of a man that we see in Hollywood that keeps a stiff upper lip through adversity and remains emotionless as he goes through it. And so we see identifying with our negative emotions and expressing them as something that is for weak people with deficient faith. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. And in fact, in Psalm 120, we see the psalmist grieving. Um, he is in the place of uh, Meshach and Kedar. And in these two places, they're actual places, but commentators think that the psalmist is using them the same way that we use Timbuktu. Timbuktu is a literal place, but we use it to, re to refer to desolate, far-off places. And so, Commentators think that the psalmist probably isn't in these two locations, but is probably in a desolate, far-off place, an actual literal wilderness. Now, what we know for sure is that this psalmist is in a place with people who are lying and where there is war. So the psalmist is lamenting the fact, grieving the fact that the truth is really hard to discover and find and lies are abounding. Um, and so what does he do? Does he immediately go to fix-it mode? Does he immediately go to the bright side? No. His soul is deeply affected. He grieves. He's downcast. He's sickened over the reality that he's experiencing. He's angry. He wants the liars who are leading this war in making war to happen. He says this, what shall be given to you? He's referring to the liars. What shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. What he's doing right here, the psalmist is calling for the destruction of the wicked. He can't take it anymore. He longed for peace, but no matter what he does, no matter what he tries, people are bent on war. Um, the psalmist makes me think of the people in Ukraine right now, right? This is their experience. When we are in the wilderness, and when you are in the wilderness, you must grieve like the psalmist. You must not run from your negative emotions. You must experience them, lean into them. You must cry out to God. You must ask Him for deliverance. Why? Because Psalm 121 tells us that God hears us. He listens to us when we cry out. He hears us. And so cry out, we should. Now sometimes we're, our hearts ache because not of our own personal wilderness, but of one of our loved, loved ones is in the wilderness. I know just in these past two weeks, we, Mary and I have heard story after story of people in the wilderness, and it's, it has really just, it's been heavy for us to know that people we care about are going through really difficult <clears throat> times. One thing that Christians often are, they're not good at is weeping with those who weep. Often when a Christian comes to us and they're grieving a, a wilderness experience, we often, you know, really quickly point them to the bright side. We talk, we try and find a silver lining. We try and fix it for them. We're not good at actually grieving with people, weeping with them, listening with empathy, sitting in their negative, in their negative emotions uh, with them. Now, 
Here's what happens if we run from our negative emotions. We can ignore them, but they will not ignore us. They will resurface in our life, and typically they resurface in terms of extreme anxiety, worry, and fear if they're not dealt with in a healthy way. And so it's really detrimental to us in the wilderness. Um, Jesus, John 11.35, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus did not run from his grief. He did not suppress it or ignore it. What's interesting about this verse is it comes in a passage where Jesus, in 15 minutes, is about to raise Lazarus, his buddy who died. And even though Jesus knows that in 15 minutes he's going to raise him back to life, he takes time to grieve. Lazarus' death and how it's affecting him personally, Jesus, and Mary and Martha, Lazarus's siblings. Jesus wept. Grieving in the biblical sense is how you cast your cares on God who cares for you. It's how we move from suffering alone to suffering with the God who is with us. It is how we avoid ignoring those negative emotions that won't ignore us. Now, let's recap what we've said about grieving. And there's some other tidbits in here that will be helpful. So first, resist the urge to deny minimize or distract yourself from your grief. You know why we're so busy in America? This is one of the reasons. We keep ourselves busy so we don't have to deal with the reality that we're in and the hurt that we've experienced and the negative emotions that are inside of us. So we keep ourselves entertained, we keep ourselves busy, and it's a problem. All right, name your negative emotions. What is it? Is it anxiety? Is it stress? Is it fear? Is it worry? Is it um, sadness? Name the negative emotion. And then as a way of leaning into it and not away from it, notice where that negative emotion is manifesting itself in your body. Is it a pit in your stomach? Is it a lump in your throat? Is it tension in your shoulders and your back? Where is it manifesting itself in your body? And then, express your sadness, confusion, anger, disappointment, worry, and or doubt to God. And as you do, remember and be reminded of the fact that He hears you. He does not ignore you. And I would encourage you, because we are to weep with those who weep. We are to carry each other's burdens. Invite somebody into the grieving process that can grieve with you. All right. Here's what grieving done well does, uh, actually does for us. It opens the door for hope. That's the beauty of it. Check this out. Grieving will, makes way for hope. So, uh, if you grieve well. So, when my, my boys were younger, they were little, I noticed something that when they were sad, when they were angry, when they were hurt, um, if I would grieve with them and listen to them and extend empathy to them, it wouldn't take very long before their little hearts would melt. And as I tuned to their emotions, uh, the tears would come out of them. They would, um, you know, if they did something wrong, they would apologize. Peace and like this equilibrium would come to them and they would be able to start thinking in more optimistic, level-headed ways. This is grief making a way 
for hope. Grieving well with somebody, making a way for hope. The th here's what I've learned. We do not grow out of this. We do not grow out of this. As adults, we still need this if we're going to be healthy individuals. If we do not grieve well, then what happens is hope, we don't make a pathway for hope, and then our grief becomes sour. And when our grief becomes sour, we become really pessimistic, we become depressed, we become despondent, we become extremely downcast, and we can get stuck in that place of grief if we don't grieve well, and it becomes this thing that destroys us from the inside out. So let's move to the hope side of the equation, because Psalm 120 is really the grieving part. Psalm 121 is the hope part. Hope if we're going to hope well in the wilderness, is based in God. True hope is based in God. God will listen. He will respond. Other things that we place our hope in, when the storms of life come, a lot of times they're no help at all. You place your hope in money. You place your hope in status or material possessions or whatever it might be. Those things will ignore you when the trials of life come, and they will prove to be not very helpful most of the time. So hope based in God is true hope. God, the psalmist tells us, is the maker of heaven and earth. So what does this tell us about wilderness and hoping in God? Well, God, if he created the heavens and the earth, he is the most powerful, the wisest, the smartest person that exists. And so it makes perfect sense that we would hope in God. Why would we not? The psalmist says, God will not allow the foot of the person who trusts in him to be moved. In other, in other words, so when we're going through the wilderness, God will steady our feet so we don't fall. He will steady us in the midst of the wilderness. The psalmist says that God keeps the person that trusts in him. This word keeps means to protect, guard, uh, provide for, care for. That's what it means that God will keep us. He will protect, guard, guide us in the wilderness. Uh, the psalmist says that God does not sleep. God does not sleep. He never grows weary or tired or faints. His strength is unlimited. And that means that 24 7, 365, God is constantly watching and guarding, watching over you and guarding you. He is the ultimate helicopter father in the best ways of being a helicopter parent. Constant surveillance over you. In fact, um, the psalmist goes on to say that he will keep the sun from scorching those who trust him. Is there anything in all of creation more powerful than the sun? I cannot think of anything. Uh, we are 93 million miles away from the sun. And yet this spring, if you are to go out when it's a sunny day and you're all pasty white from the winter, it probably won't take more than 15 minutes before you are burnt by something that's 93 million miles away. The sun burns at nearly 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The sun's radius is 432,690 miles as compared to the Earth's, which is not even 4,000 miles. Is there anything more powerful than the sun? Why is the psalmist talking about the sun here? He is saying that even the sun, as powerful as it is, is no match for God in his power. 
What about when life gets really dark and scary in the wilderness? You know, it can. What happens then? Well, the moon will not strike you either. So God protects us. The psalmist is saying his, his care and protection is comprehensive. All right, God preserves his people in their comings and goings forever. So long before GPS trackers were invented, God had GPS trackers on his people. And he knows our coming, our comings and our goings. It makes me think of Psalm 139, verses 1 through 12. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You see, God is constantly watching over us, right? Now, the other thing that the psalmist tells us is that God preserves the soul of the person who trusts in him from all evil. And when the psalmist says this, this is critical for understanding Psalm 121, especially if you haven't read Psalm 120. So notice what the promise is. God will preserve your soul from evil. Does, so notice what the promise is not. The promise is not God will protect you from all difficulty, hardship, tragedy, or death. It's not the promise. He will not protect you necessarily from all those things. No, now, no doubt, there are plenty of times in our lives where God has protects us from death. There's plenty of times where he protects us from disease and illness. And in fact, we are probably only aware of the, uh, you know, a small amount of those things that God really keeps uh, and protects us from. I'm sure within a, even in a week, there's probably thousands of ways God protects us from <clears throat> harm. But the promise is not he will protect us from all harm or all difficulty. The promise is in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of, of evil, you will be un, um, you will be un. <clears throat> You will be unharmed by the evil in any ultimate way. It cannot ultimately hurt you. That is the promise. Notice in Psalm 120, this guy, he is in a desolate place. He is being impacted by liars. There's war. This is difficulty. This is hardship. This is a wilderness experience. But the promise to him is that evil will not ultimately harm his soul. That's the promise. That's why um, the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 8, 35-39, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Sounds like a pretty difficult wilderness experience. Are they shielded from it? No. But yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the, the thing that we fear most of all is death, isn't it? That's the ultimate greatest enemy. But God won't even allow death to ultimately harm us, even if we experience it. And we will. Everybody does. God has taken the sting out of death, hasn't he? Because when we die, we do not experience separation from Jesus. We remain in his loving embrace. And it's actually when we die as Christians, it is the best day of our lives. Because we actually are connected to the one who, uh, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. And so even death, the worst thing that can happen to us, leads to the best thing that happens to us in Christ. Death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? And I'll tell you what, if you don't fear death, you're not going to fear all lesser things in life. This is the promise. So, let's recap the hope side. The hope component of laments. 24-7, 365, God uses His limitless power to watch, protect, and provide for you. If He has allowed a trial into your life, it is for your long-term good, and He will provide what you need to make it through. He will allow nothing, not even death, to ultimately harm you. The immense joy you will experience in the next life will make even the worst suffering in this life extremely minor in comparison. And then I encourage you to invite others to hope with you. Just as you invite them to grieve with you, invite them to hope with you. And now let me talk about the thing I just skipped. You can change your what-ifs to even-ifs. You see, if our focus is on the greatness and goodness of God, we can change our what-ifs to even-ifs. And this is how it goes. What if my marriage falls apart? No. Even if my marriage falls apart, God will supply all my needs. His grace will be sufficient. I will make it through what if I lose my job? No. Even if I lose my job, God will supply all my needs. His grace is sufficient. I will make it through. What if we can't get pregnant? No. Even if we can't get pregnant, God will supply all our needs. God's grace is sufficient. We will make it through. What if my husband dies fighting the Russians? No. Even if. My husband dies fighting the Russians. God will supply all our needs. His strength is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. He will make it through. What if our country enters war with Russia? No. Even if our country enters war with Russia, we will have what we need. God's grace will supply all our needs. It will be sufficient. We will make it through. What if, the diagno what if my diagnosis comes back as cancer? Nope. Even if the diagnosis comes back as cancer, God's grace will be sufficient. He will supply my needs. I will make it through. What if death comes to me? Nope. Even if death comes, there will never be a moment that I'm alone. 
God's grace will be sufficient. I will make it through. You see, when we are so rooted in the greatness and goodness of God, our what-ifs can be changed to even-ifs. And if, our, if we're living by even, the even-if attitude and mentality, guess what happens to us? We start to relax. 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 We can move through even the wilderness with more ease. Will it still be really difficult? Of course. <coughs> but you will not be crushed. And even though it's difficult, you won't be in despair. It'll be difficult, but you will have a strength that is not your own. And you will fear less. You will worry less. You'll be less anxious. Because even if, even if the worst thing my brain can come up with, and our brains can come up with these crazy scenarios, even if... I'm going to be okay. God is with me. So, in the wilderness, grieve, but don't grieve as somebody that has no hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you entered into our wilderness, the pain, the suffering of this world and our lives to take it upon yourself, to bear it, so that you could lift us up, so that you could be united to us, so that you can, could be our shepherd in the wilderness, so that you could take us through our wilderness experiences and actually make us better for having gone through it. Thank you that we, when we turn to you in repentance and faith, um, we're never alone. We're never alone. You're always with us because then at that moment you live inside us by your spirit. And we can't get any closer to you. Lord, thank you that uh, you give us permission to grieve, to cry out, to express our frustration, our anger, our disappointment, our confusion, our worries, our anxieties, our doubts. We're allowed to do that. I think of you on the cross as you cried out. Those You were quoting psalms of lament as you hung on the cross for us. We have permission to grieve. May we grieve well. May we not run from our grief, suppress it, minimize it, or try to ignore it. And yet, Lord, help us not to get stuck there. Help us to move towards hope in the midst of our grief as we set our minds and hearts on your greatness and your goodness and your promises to us. We love you, Jesus. We can't wait for your return when sorrow will be no more. War will be no more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.